Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as our guest today Tom Moriarty, Executive Vice President, Chief Strategy Officer, and General Counsel of CVS Health. Tom has spent over 15 years as a senior lawyer and general counsel in a number of pharmaceutical and pharmacy companies, and he has been deeply involved in the legal and business issues in healthcare which is, of course, one of our nation's most important business sectors. We're going to have a lot of fun with Tom today, so thank you for joining us. Tom, welcome to In-House Legal. Well, thank you very much. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. So, Tom, that's a huge set of responsibilities and a wide range of issues that you're going to confront. Let's step back a little bit because our listeners frequently like to know how general counsels become general counsels. I know that you went to law school at UVA and then you started off, like so many of us do, in a law firm. Was that an important decision in your mind to go get training in a law firm before you went in-house, or was it simply happenstance that's the route you took? Yeah, the initial fork in the road for me was whether to go with uh, a law firm in New York or come back to New Jersey, which is where my home has really always been. And I made the decision to go to New York first because... um, my feeling was you could always work back from New York to a large New Jersey firm. You could not really do the reverse. And so I started with the Wall Street firm of Mudge Rose and did that for not too long. And I ended up going out to a smaller trial firm uh, in New Jersey because I really wanted to get in the courtroom and get experience. So I made the transition from New York to New Jersey more quickly than originally anticipated, but it was, uh, it was definitely the right move to make because the experience, the practical experience I received uh, with that smaller firm really has held me in good stead uh, over the years. So were you at Mudge Rose, were you doing litigation or were you doing deals? Yeah, I was originally recruited to do white-collar criminal uh, defense work with uh, Jed Rakoff, who is now uh, the federal judge. And like most large firms, uh, the original intent gets sort of dashed because of uh, new workloads that come in. And I ended up getting assigned to this just mammoth multi-state litigation uh, where it literally took about 25 to 30 associates onto the case. So we got swept into that. And rather than doing white-collar criminal work, I found myself in a warehouse and at depositions across the country uh, in hotspots like Oswego, New York, and some other uh, very fun places. So, uh, you know, the original plan got derailed a little bit, but I did get some good practical litigation experience uh, at Mudros. So, Tom, you know, your own experience of going to a law firm, going to two law firms before you went in-house, would you recommend that as a course for folks starting out if they want to become an in-house lawyer, that they get some valuable experience at a law firm first? Yeah, I think the practice has changed a lot over the years. And I go back and forth in my own mind in terms of how we hire, uh, because historically, I think corporations largely have looked for folks having at least five years uh, firm experience before they would 
bring folks in-house um, because they wanted that training that happens at the law firm and not have to do the training, you know, within the in-house legal department. And I think as the practice of law has, A, gotten so specialized, and B, the in-house practice has grown so much, that trend, I do believe, is shifting. So it is now very possible uh, to come in as a first year into a large corporate legal department. Uh, we have not done that yet at CBS. We are evaluating uh, whether to do it or not, uh, because what we're seeing is a lot of the firms now don't have the luxury of making the investments in training and other things that they had historically because of either cost pressures, time pressures, or otherwise. Yeah, it is a potential shift that I've noted with other guests we've had on the show that uh, many people are considering hiring first years or people out of clerkships into their legal departments. Very few have actually taken the leap because of the considerations of training that you then take on. Right. And most corporate legal departments aren't built for that sort of very close handling of new lawyers. But I'll be interested to see whether uh, CVS does this because I know that you'd be able to, to, you know, it's a large department, you'd be able to figure this out. How many lawyers do you have in your department, Tom, and where are they located? We've grown over the last several years, obviously because of some of the acquisitions, but also from a shift, frankly, of outside spend into investments in, internally. And so we are now just over about 115 lawyers. And we have three or four main centers. Uh, one would be at our headquarters in Rhode Island. The other will be out in Scottsdale, Arizona, where uh, we have the PBM uh, headquarters. Uh, we have another large group outside of Chicago, where we have large PBM operations as well. And then we have a group just outside of Dallas, uh, again, centered around a combination retail uh, and pharmacy benefit managed PBM uh, center there. And then we have four lawyers down in Brazil. Uh, with a, an acquisition we made in Brazil about three and a half years ago now. And they, they are charged with uh, all the legal issues for that operation. So, and Brazil's your only foreign outpost at this point? It is. It is. It was the initial step out to try and learn, and uh, we have not expanded it. Uh, we have been expanding so quickly in the U.S., uh, and there's still plenty of room uh, to go. But we're, we're continually evaluating uh, when and how uh, do we extend outside the U.S.? One of the interesting aspects of your job, Tom, these days, and you've had this in the past, is that you have taken on what some might consider to be business activities in addition to the traditional legal roles. At Medco, you were president of the Global Pharma Strategies, and here at, at CVS, you're also the chief strategy officer. Has that been an important part of you for personal development to have those additional roles? And how do you square those with your role as the general counsel? No, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, it, it is something obviously I enjoy uh, an awful lot. And I, I was lucky at Medco where I actually stepped out of the legal department and moved to the business side for about two years in the M&A corporate development role. And the ability to step out and see in much more depth all of the issues that confront the business and how you manage them not only made me a better lawyer because uh, I had a greater appreciation uh, than you might have had otherwise uh, for those issues and how they get managed, but I think it's made me a better corporate manager as well uh, by doing it. And so, I mean, the one hard and fast rule I have is that where I have the business responsibility, I am not the lawyer. 
I have a dedicated lawyer who is essentially the general counsel for that business unit, and they make the legal decisions. I do not, because you really have to watch that line and make sure you're not blurring the legal and the business, obviously for privilege and other reasons. But, you know, on a personal level, professional level, I've really enjoyed it. It's challenging. It makes for long days, uh, but it makes for, for fun days, too. How did uh, being on the business side change your perception of risk when it comes to doing your general counsel job? Because that frequently is the tension point between the lawyers and the business people when you get right down to it. You know, you don't make money if you don't take risks, and lawyers tend to regard themselves rightly and perhaps sometimes too zealously as the protectors of the corporate fisc and reputation and every other thing about the corporation, which tends to be an anti-risk position. Right, right. No, exactly. I mean, it, an early, early mentor and an early lesson I learned at Mudge Rose was the concept of it's not what the law says, it's what the law means. And, you know, your best counselors, your best lawyers will tell you not only what the law says, but apply it and translate it for a business context. And I think the biggest lesson I learned by sitting on the business side was the real need and thirst for that from the business leaders. Um, because a lot of areas of the law can be confusing, counterintuitive to business folks. And gaining that skill set of applying the law in a practical way was probably the single biggest benefit of sitting on the other side. How does your role at CVS translate into the external functions? In other words, you know, general counsels have an external role, obviously, but with your business roles and otherwise, do you find yourself externally focused more than than you think other general counsels do or about the same? I would say probably more so because of the combination roles and also because of, of where we sit in the healthcare issues and healthcare system and the prominence those issues have and have had over the last several years with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, its application, and all the different public policy questions and regulatory questions, uh, you know, that has spawned. And so I find my, an awful lot of my time being down in D.C., down in Washington, or in the state capitals, talking about issues, uh, talking about policy. And so because of the prominence of, you know, all of the health care issues today, as well as over the last several years, it is much more, I think, externally focused than you might see other general counsels have in their roles. And how do you meld the external and internal? Do you have a special team that you convene in order to ensure that, you know, the external statements are G'd really well with your internal policies, or is this sort of a ad hoc effort? No, it's, it's very, very coordinated. Um, we have uh, one of the groups that, that I have responsibility for is our government affairs and public policy teams. So all of our positioning uh, at the regulatory level, at the legislative level, and at the policy level, you know, runs through a process to make sure we're fully aligned across the company. And then no one can speak publicly without their remarks being reviewed by uh, the communications and the public policy team because we need to speak with one voice. And so it is very organized and very consistent uh, across the board. And uh, you know, a great example is I gave a speech yesterday morning in D.C. at a Politico, uh, the magazine Politico Breakfast, and it was on drug pricing. Uh, and it's an event we've sponsored for the last six years. Uh, it's a series of conversations. And that's probably the best example of how you bring to bear the policy regulatory and communication messaging to a single voice. I'm glad you brought up drug pricing because, you know, it's, there's nothing when you get down to it that's 
as complicated, I think, as the healthcare marketplace, which is comprises so many different types of businesses from doctors to pharmacy businesses to pharmaceutical companies. You had a stint as the general counsel of a pharmaceutical company, one that actually produced you know, drugs at Celgene. How did that experience translate into your experience now at CVS? Is it, do you feel that you're empowered in a different way because you sat on the other side of a very important table? Uh, yes, and also, you know, earlier in my career, I was with Merck, you know, the pharmaceutical company, for uh, a long time before my assignment up to Medco, uh, which was a company that Merck owned and then spun out. But, you know, I have the benefit of understanding almost the full spectrum now of pharmaceutical development all the way through the approval process, the discovery process, uh, as well as then the marketing and sales process. So that background is extremely valuable. And I think it's one of the reasons uh, I was given responsibility at Medco and now at CVS for our pharmaceutical supply chain. That's all the negotiations with the branded and generic manufacturers, as well as you know serving as chairman of the board of Red Oak Sourcing, which is the generic joint venture we have with Cardinal. So that experience at Celgene, as well as at Merck, you know, it's invaluable each day as, as we go forward here at CVS. So let's take that one second, because given your, your government affairs and public policy role and your experience with the actual manufacturers leads us into, you know, what could be a thorny reputational issue, because we've all seen that the manufacturing companies, the pharmaceutical companies, are a favorite whipping boy for the price of drugs. And there have been some notable bad actors or perceived bad actors given price raises that don't seem to make any sense for older drugs. How do you ensure that CVS stays out of that sort of a maw, that sort of a bad public relations problem? Yeah, and pharma, the branded pharma companies, try each and every day to bring us into that mall. So there's a lot of finger pointing in that drug pricing, you know, discussion, et cetera. And what we have to do, and we do it all the time, is we talk and stick to the simple value proposition that we have as a pharmacy provider. You know, drug trend, the drug spend, inflation of branded drugs has been running at roughly between 11 and 13% over the last five to six years, where if you look at what the actual price being paid for by PBM clients is, it's a delta of, you know, it can be a double-digit delta in terms of the savings. And that, that is billions and billions of dollars of savings to the clients because of what the PBMs do. And the data shows that it's $6 of savings for every $1 invested in PBM services. So when we boil it down and get to the hard facts, the noise that pharma tries to create about PBMs really starts to fall apart. But it's an everyday battle, and we have to be on it every day, Randy. So it's a great question. Let's talk for a second about a big decision that CVS made uh, a few years ago about what it sold in its corner stores, and that is the decision about tobacco. Give us a background, some background on this, and lead us through the kind of decision-making that went into such an important and big decision for CVS. Sure. It was a very big decision, and really, I think, is a great demonstration of leadership. So I've been at uh, CVS now for a little over four years, and when I joined, the, the conversation was already started uh, internally about how to address the transition from really becoming a true healthcare company, which is what the strategy has been and is for us going forward, 
you know, here in the United States as, as well as if we do extend outside the U.S. And the conundrum that cigarettes posed, uh, given even one puff of a cigarette can be damaging for an individual. And so really I have to give credit to our CEO, Larry Merlot, and his leadership on this question because it was, you know, $2 billion in revenue and obviously a significant uh, contributed to EBITDA. And we were able to do it when we made the decision without changing our guidance to Wall Street. The only number that changed was our revenue number. But we, were not, we did not change any of the other key metrics that the street measures on, which I think is, is a, a key barometer, not just from the economic, but the social side of things. Because we are convinced that by making that decision and repositioning the company that we have been able to grow even faster than we may have been able to do otherwise. And so, you know, it was Larry's leadership and obviously other leaders throughout the company who were able to accomplish that. And then real board support in driving that. And the key message from the board was, this is such an important decision. Don't be second in making it. And it was that strength that really allowed us to go forward across the entire uh, enterprise. And about how long did it take? I know the discussion was already ongoing when you when you arrived, but once the decision was made to pull the trigger, how quickly were you able to get all the arrows in the corporation aligned toward the same goal? We made the decision relatively quickly. It really catalyzed pretty quickly, you know, maybe two to three months before the actual announcement was made. And then in order to accomplish it, because we have now over 9,000 locations across the country, and if you'll recall, those cigarettes were fairly prominent at the checkout counters at every one of those stores. And so if you you think of the logistics of switching that out across 9,000 stores, and so that planning took time, and we announced that we would do it within a year, and we actually were able to accelerate and accomplish it in about nine months. And the way we did it was we took the long Labor Day weekend to do all the refacing at our stores and get that done. And then the first opening after the Labor Day weekend, we rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange and at the same time announced the rebranding, renaming of the company from CVS Caremark to CVS Health. So uh, the one thing the organization is truly very, very good at is operational excellence and refacing and redoing the stores. And it really showed with taking tobacco out and then repositioning the stores as, as more of a healthcare center. So your board told you it was important to be first, and you were. Is there a second yet, or are you guys alone in this? We are still alone. Uh, we are the only national chain pharmacy to have made this decision. And uh, do you think that others will follow, or do you think that they're simply figuring that they've got more of a market now in, in tobacco products, and they might as well just double down? Well, you know, I, I can't speak for our competitors. I just know that if you look at how our country is evolving and the role that pharmacy will play as we demand manage or manage the demand rather uh, for health care, pharmacies are going to play an increasingly important role in that. Uh, that inconsistency, I think, will only you know have further light shown on it. So they will have to make their own decisions. We made ours and, uh, you know, we're moving forward. Let me ask you one final aspect of this decision that you made. Was there any concern that you were setting foot on a slippery slope and that there would be calls that you would have to seriously consider to take other things out of the store, like sweet drinks, for instance? There was. And there was an awful lot of discussion around that. And, you know, where we are very comfortable and still are very comfortable is that all those other products, whether it's chocolate, 
uh, sodas, etc., in moderation are fine from a healthcare perspective. There is no amount of tobacco or tobacco products that is fine, and the research truly shows that. But we are taking steps in our stores as well to promote healthier eating, healthier food products, and you'll see that as we roll that out across the enterprise, across the chain over the next year or so. Um, So there is a kind of a de-emphasis of soda and candy and more of an emphasis on, you know, health bars and and fresh fruit and those sorts of things uh, in a lot of the geographic areas that we're serving. But it definitely was a conversation and it definitely was a concern uh, that once you took a decision where you're going to have to keep going down the slope. Let's turn to um, what you think might happen next year when we have a new president and a new head of HHS in Congressman Price. Obviously, there are going to be changes. Uh, There's no question about it. I think the larger question is how much change and how quickly uh, will we see things. And obviously, you know, the Republican platform has been for a while now the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, The key question is, though, repeal and replace. And if you look, there are two or three different plans that are out there in terms of replacing the Affordable Care Act. And it's not a wholesale replace. Obviously, President-elect Trump has announced there are four, five, six conditions within the Affordable Care Act that he will not change. And so those will be worked around as well. I think, you know, there's no disagreement at the national level on the national priority and need for health care. The debate has always been about in what form and will it be more of a private solution and uh, industry-based solution or will it be more of a government solution? And I think the changes you'll see will be around it being much more of a privatized, private industry solution uh, and less so being centralized uh, at the national government. And so things like block grants for Medicaid are, are clearly being talked about. Turning Medicare into more of a private offering, we already have it with Medicare Part D that has been very, very successful and, and a lot, frankly, in Medicare uh, Advantage, too. And so I think though all those issues will be on the table, but a lot of this will come from the Congress. There will be proposals that will obviously come out of HHS, but a lot of this takes legislation, not just regulation. And so it's that legislative change that will have to happen first before you can see a wholesale uh, redoing uh, of the Affordable Care Act. So as head of CVS's public policy team, are you expecting uh, to spend quite a bit of time down in Washington in the new year for the legislative battle? Uh, Yes. And uh, frankly, I have reoriented a lot of my time commitments over the last six to eight months to be much more D.C. focused as we were gearing up uh, to the national election and, and what you know, what would flow out of that. And we have a very robust team at the federal level and the state level because these issues are obviously core to our business. And we will be very active in the dialogue with proposed solutions, depending on what the actual uh, legislative and regulatory changes are. Uh, but yes, I, I will be there a lot. And uh, we obviously are making uh, the, the investments we need to to make sure that our voice can be heard. I know you'll be there and doing a great job. I guess one further question is whether you think that the coalitions that existed to get the Affordable Care Act passed back in 2008 have shifted over time, or will we see the same groupings of private and public players? I think you will. I I think you'll see uh, those types of coalitions. They may morph some uh, with different players, but I think by and large, You know, most folks who supported the Affordable Care Act knew that it did need some changing um, and certain things weren't working, uh, whether it was on the risk pools or funding or other things. But I do think, you know, it will still be a quasi 
publicly funded and privately executed solution. And so, again, while some of those coalitions will morph, I think a lot of the same issues on the table and the same discussions will be had. And do you see your tremendous storefronts, you know, your 9,000 storefronts all throughout the country as an anchor for taking on further responsibilities in the healthcare arena as time goes forward and proffering those as part of any sort of legislative solution? Uh, we do. And I think, you know, the first sort of showing of that is the minute clinics uh, that we, we have uh, now in roughly about 1,500 locations uh, across the country. And, that, and that's where you can get, you know, care for infections, minor health-related issues. We are extending those to be more of a chronic care management type program. So weight loss, diabetes management, cardiovascular management, and the like. We also have and purchased, uh, acquired rather, a home infusion company that deals with the transition of patients out of hospital to home and the infusible therapies that can be administered at the home. Uh, We have a pilot going on now in Texas, actually just ended, where we were repositioning some of the miniclinic locations to be able to do infusible therapies and use them as a, a healthcare center uh, for infusible therapies. And the whole push to lower cost sites of care out of the higher cost centers into lower cost centers, that push will continue. It is a true economic need and national need. And so even as we deal with changes under the Affordable Care Act and replacements, that push will continue and we will continue to morph our retail footprint to match uh, the demand management uh, that needs to happen. Well, that's a tremendous challenge for you and the company, I'm sure. Let's turn to a different challenge that you're going to face, and that is the one on cybersecurity. I know that you've been facing it for quite some time. What are the steps that you've taken at CVS to ensure that the important health data that you have remains safe from cybersecurity problems? Well, it's been multifaceted, as I'm sure you can appreciate, given the role that you play for a number of years. We have a very close working relationship with our chief technology officer and our our privacy and security areas. And the Office of Privacy sits within the Office of the General Counsel. And so that interrelationship between those groups is critical in terms of the information flows access to information by folks and where the information resides and and then how it can be accessed by those who need it. And so it is a multifaceted because we have some of the most you know, sensitive information on folks in terms of healthcare records, as do our competitors and others who play in the healthcare space. And so the commitment we have around, you know, cybersecurity and ensuring uh, the security of the records that we have is paramount for the company. Have you taken steps to ensure that you have lawyers on staff who have technical chops, or do you leave that to the technical folks under the information people or the CISO? Now, we have the internal expertise within the legal uh, department. I would think, you know, one or two of, of the lawyers on our team understand our systems and our systems capabilities and limitations almost as well as the folks who are responsible for those systems. Um, and what's really interesting is giving a good trial lawyer a challenge 
of learning something new and seeing what they can do with it. That's the way we've approached it. We've almost looked at it from a trial perspective and developed that skill set with that mindset involved. And so that has proved incredibly valuable as not only as we've negotiated with vendors and clients and others, but also how we work the data flows and who should have access and who should not based off of work responsibilities as well as legal and regulatory obligations that flow with that. And how have you created and sustained board reporting on the cybersecurity issue, which is a critical problem that people face? Did you have to change the way you report to the board, or what have you been doing to keep them abreast? We have not changed the way it has been reported or managed at the board level, but we clearly have increased the frequency at which we're talking about these issues with the board. And so if you look at our audit committee, we are lucky that we have several folks who have a very good background in these areas, either because of their defense background or their management background um, at very large corporations. And then we have obviously a very good chief technology officer. He's one of the best, you know, out there as well as our privacy folks. Um, And so the level of detail that we can get to with the board and their understanding of the issues has really increased over the last several years. Yeah, it's critical to have someone on the board who can approach cybersecurity as an expert. Tom, thank you very much for speaking with us today on In-House Legal. It's been a hugely informative half hour, and we appreciate it. Great. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For any of you who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com or follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch, and thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.